Hey, everybody. This is Liam Peters in San Francisco, and welcome to the Daily Reflection Podcast. So you can't 12-step away mental illness. You know, 12 steps are wonderful for things, but they can't. It doesn't take away uh, depression. It doesn't take away mental illness. Alcohol is a depressant, and you take a depressant out of the equation, your depression gets better. But if it's deep-seated, a professional outside help is absolutely necessary. Welcome to the Daily Reflection Podcast. My name is Michael Lynn from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I'm Lee McGinnis from Leesburg, Virginia. As members of the recovery community, we created this podcast as a way to provide experience, strength, and hope through the lens of the Daily Reflection book. Each day, we interview members of the recovery community in the hope that their experience may provide inspiration. We value inclusion and diversity, and we really want to provide a platform for all the voices of recovery. We aren't affiliated with any 12-step or recovery program, but you may hear these mentioned throughout the course of an interview. Hey, before we get to the show, I'd like to ask a favor. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, it'd be great if you could leave us a comment or a rating. This is going to do a couple of things. It's going to help us expand our reach and improve the show. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Hey, Lee, who's in the studio today? So today is May 12th, and I'm very excited about our guest today. We have Liam P. in the house today. He's from San Francisco, California, and he's here to talk to us about the daily reflection for today, which is the past is over. Fantastic. Well, Liam, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks. I appreciate being here. All right. Well, we start the show in the same way every day. We ask the guest if they would get us started by reading the daily reflection. Would you help us get started? Absolutely. May 12th, the past is over. AA's experience has taught us we cannot live alone with our pressing problems and the character defects which cause or aggravate them. If step four has revealed in stark relief those experiences we'd rather not remember, then the need to quit living by ourselves with those tormenting ghosts of yesterday gets more urgent than ever. We have to talk to somebody about them. 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, page 55. Whatever is done is over. It cannot be changed. But my attitude about it can be changed through talking with those who have gone before and with sponsors. I can wish the past never was, but if I change my attitude in regard to what I've done, my attitudes will change. I won't have to wish the past away. I can change my feelings and attitudes, but only through my actions and the help of my fellow alcoholics. (sighs) This is, it gives me a sense of relief to just read it. Thank you for reading. Before we get started, Liam, what's your sobriety date? Um, October 5th, 1990. And as you read this, what comes up first for you? They speak of the ghost of our past, which kind of backhanded me. (laughs) It's a nice way of putting it. (laughs) You know, I've read this a few times. When you asked me to read this a couple of weeks ago with our introduction and stuff, I read it one way and it meant something to me. And because I said yes to service, um, it means something different to me today, um, particularly the, the, the reflection part of it. So my attitude has definitely changed in the last two weeks. I'm a sometimes slowly variety of alcoholic. I, time isn't always a tool. Um, It took me a long time to peel the layers of the onion off, as they like to talk about in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
Yeah, it's just, it's been a really slow process um, changing my attitude towards the past. Liam, would you be comfortable talking a little bit about what it was like before you came in? Maybe tell us a little bit about those ghosts. Sure. I was this creative little boy that used to like to twirl and squeal. (laughs) And I've grown up to be a sober man that is still creative and not twirling as much. (laughs) You know, I, at a very young age, I realized I was uh, different from all the other little boys. And, um, and about, I don't know, third or fourth grade, it suddenly felt like it wasn't okay to be myself. And, um, I can just remember having a lot of shame about being who I was just at like eight and nine and um, used to wish that I could get sick and, and die at a young age. And then as I got a little older, I was wishing I could um, kill myself. And then as I got a little older, um, I used to start thinking about ways to kill myself all over the shame of being who I was. You know, I took my first drink in junior high school. I was at a party I definitely should not have been at. It was a Mai Tai made with 151, and I drank half of it, threw up, and for whatever reason, I thought it would be a really good idea to finish that. And I blacked out, passed out, and somehow magically got home. And that pretty much describes about 80% of my drinking. For the next, uh, you know, I got sober at 28. People that aren't quick at math, I'm 59 now. So, (laughs) you know, I got my driver's license on my 16th birthday. And five weeks later, I got pulled over for my first DWI. You know, I flunked my junior year in high school uh, because I never went to school. I was at the liquor store at second period. You know, I skipped. I mean, I was a really bad after-school special. It was just, you know, I was a train wreck at an early age. And um, so I quit high school, and what should have been my senior year in high school, I attempted, you know, something snapped, and I, I tried to kill myself. And it was, I still see the scars today, the physical. Um, sometimes I can feel the scars, the mental scars. And, you know, I that was probably my lowest bottom. My parents... <clears throat> took me to a psychiatrist, which they should have, and, and they did. And my solution was just to keep on drinking. And I had quit high school, so I wasn't in school. And, you know, it was, you need to get a job if you're not going to go to school. And then I got a, ended up getting my GED, did get a job, the restaurant business. I'm not saying everybody in the restaurant business is an alcoholic, but we are well represented. You know, it was a lot of after work stuff. And shortly after getting that job, I got the, if you're going to live in our house, you're going to live by our rules conversation. And I was like, okay. So I moved out. And here I am like just knee deep in alcoholism and a teenager. And I moved out and moved in with some friends and got kicked out of that place shortly after. got my own place and just, you know, just the spiral of alcoholism. Uh, you know, I used to steal to feed myself. I would just—I was a thief, a liar, lost jobs, wrecked cars, got pulled over many times for DWI. I've done jail time, all of it. it, it 
just, it was a mess. <clears throat> and the last year I drank, I had the good fortune of going to this meditation group and I was trying to do control drinking, which is not fun. <laughs> it is not fun to try to control it. Uh, there's something in the big book, you know, my hat's off to you if you can go in and have one. But I used to go to this meditation group on Monday and I met a bunch of people that had very different spiritual backgrounds. And I had divorced myself from God through that variety of people, I was able to formulate something bigger than myself. And I still, to this day, don't know what it is. I think I had, I think I thought I knew what it was back then, but today I don't. The last bender I went on uh, involved a lot of drugs. I was drinking near beer at the time and somebody suggested that we do cocaine. And um, so, wow, you just, I can't, I couldn't do <laughs> that drug without drinking. So that was a two-day bender, all-nighter. And then when we stopped and I walked away from it, everything just quit. Everything just stopped working. I was exhausted. I was like, I can't do this anymore. What was on the books for that night, um, which was October 4th, 1990, was a beach meditation with a couple of people from that meditation group. And I remember the night, well, I was on in Northeast Florida, and it was an absolutely beautiful, clear, no storms, full moon night. And I sat down and just said, please, please help me. Um, in my head, I can't do this anymore. And I did the meditation. And the next morning, I woke up, and um, I was not shaking physically wasn't shaking. I used to have to drink fairly quickly upon rising, just to calm it down. And I didn't drink for a few days. And that Monday, that was a Friday, I always quit drinking on or start diets on Mondays. <laughs> but uh, that was a Friday. And on Monday, I rode my bike, I didn't have a driver's license at the time. And I rode my bike over to the, uh, the crystal and metaphysical bookstore uh, that held the meditation. And I talked to the guy and I knew he didn't drink. And I told him what happened. And I said, I drank too much. And I was, I haven't drank in a few days. And he goes, well, I, you know, I could sometimes smell alcohol in your beer, on your breath. And um, I don't know if he needed me that afternoon or not. But he said, I've got to run some errands. Could you, would you mind hanging out and like we can work it out with money or you can grab a book or something? But could you just watch the shop for me? And he says, while you're here, why don't you read this? <laughs> he pulled out the big book. So I read that and he came back and we talked about what I read. And he said, I need help tomorrow. Can you come back tomorrow afternoon? And at the time I was working nights. So that's how I got 12 stepped. And that's what my introduction to truly reading the big book was. Um, I had, I, what I failed to mention is I've gone in and out of AA because of rehabs or a judge or a lawyer or to get somebody off my back in the 80s. So I knew where it was, but I never, never joined. I just did it to get somebody off my back. And then 
you know, as, as I said, I was kind of a slowly variety. I didn't embrace it completely. I kind of did my version of the steps the first time around and it, and I've had many sponsors and I've worked this step in many, many ways differently and more thoroughly over the years. First of all, thank you for sharing that story. And I, um, the part that sunk in that I feel like I want to acknowledge is just this feeling of shame for who you are, or who you were. Like I, I can relate to that for different reasons, probably, but I think many of us can, as we come into AA, just the sense that we are just not worthy in some way, shape or form. And then the annihilation process that begins, you know, we it's suicide by alcohol, I think is what we're doing, but so you get in, you're 28, right? 28 or 29? 28 at, at that time. 28, and you get 12-step by this amazing earth angel. And then what happens? You get into AA, and then did you start, did you get a sponsor? Did you start working the steps? What Describe the early recovery process for us, if you would. Well, I held on to that shame uh, around my sexuality for a long time. I just want to acknowledge that. I didn't even know. I mean, I continued to work for him part-time for a little bit. I didn't know what he was. I didn't ask him to be my sponsor, but in hindsight, he was my sponsor. And he said, oh, you should try going to a meeting. So I went to a meeting and I did what I was famous for, like show up as the meeting starting or like a minute before and kind of sit in the back. There was a clubhouse about a mile from where I lived and took off as soon as, you know, the, the last prayer was said. and. Um, where I lucked out is many of the people that came into his shop and also a couple of them that went to that meditation group, they were sober. So I saw them. So I had a connection with them that wasn't AA. So that is kind of my, my team AA that I had. I didn't embrace the fellowship. Lots of shame. I'm different. I'm very different. I eventually got another sponsor who uh, I, I met at a LGBT meeting, and I, it took me about, goodness, probably three years to get into a gay AA meeting. And where I got sober, there was four meetings in the entire county. <laughs> so and it was, I got to know people, but then there was the trust issue. Like, you know, I felt like I couldn't trust people in AA, and then I couldn't trust gay men, and I've got all this stuff with men in general. Straight men are going to judge me. I can't trust a gay man because they're only after one thing. And just there was a lot of angst around my relationship with men. You know, I, what I will say is that I, when I worked the steps, I did it to the very best of my ability at the time. And some of it wasn't a great job, but it was the best I could do at the time. I thought my first inventory, what was wrong was with me was my sexuality, and that was a defect of character. So I like knocked out two, two steps and, and with one word. Second time around, um, you know, I was drinking at a, as a teenager, and my second inventory and fifth step, it felt a little juvenile to me. It felt very junior high. And then I was thinking about, well, of course it felt juvenile because that was probably my mentality two years into it. You kind of stop developing mentally when you, where you pick up the drink. 
And then, you know, I got another sponsor over the years and worked the steps. And the sponsor I'm working with now is for the last couple of years. And the one I had before was uh, who I met in San Francisco. I worked with 18 years and he moved away a long time ago. And he had suggested three years ago that I find somebody local. I really feel like working the steps with the, the sponsor of, of 18 years is what helped me a lot. Sexual inventory, it was the universe's biggest joke. I come to San Francisco 20 years ago thinking I'm out. And then I realized how much internal homophobia I have. And I got to work on that. And today, you know, I've got just so many friends that are, that are men. I mean, most of my friends uh, are men today, gay, straight. You know, I'm in, involved in other uh, communities besides AA and just, uh, it's such a relief to be able to embrace everybody. And, you know, the judging was always in my head. They're going to judge me. And it's just like, they're just being who they are. They're just saying, hey, or whatever. And I have this secret committee in my head that says everybody is judging me. So today it's a very different story. Well, it sounds like the program began to work for you at some point. And do you feel like you've been able to, to put the past in a comfortable place? I mean, uh, have you resolved those, those feelings you had that, uh, that caused you so much grief? Yes. Um, you know, the shame, the shame part of it, you know, my shame is different from your shame, but the shame's been gone for a long time. You know, Mike, the, the ghost um, that kind of hit me over the head a couple of weeks when I read this reading the first time was um, the suicide attempt. Bill W. loves a door analogy. You know, there's the, the door analogy in the 12 and 12 about step three, about how it will open if you just walk toward it. He, but, you know, the ninth step says we won't regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. You know, you leave your door open, things wander in. And um, occasionally it's your past. And what I was going to say before uh, COVID happened, I can remember just one day I just the memory of my suicide attempt came up and it was like sad. And I had like, I experienced a feeling around it. And then I feel experienced a few feelings. I like to say that to sponsees when they're new, Oh, you're having a feeling, <laughs> you know, and I did what I should do. I called my sponsor and I said, you know, I'm not suicidal. I don't want to kill myself, but the, that's kind of on the forefront of my mind right now that, you know, what happened in 1979. And we talked about it and there wasn't an answer and we chatted about it. That was kind of that. And it's just there. Your past is always there. It just, you know, it's your past. I got really uncomfortable two weeks ago when I read this and that hit me over the head because I was like, you know, synchronicity is also one of my higher powers. But I read that and I thought about this, the ghost being the suicide attempt. And I said, I cannot possibly talk about that. It's way too dark. This is a you know podcast. That day I decided I was going to do this cookie cutter, neat little share about step five. And then the next day I went to a meeting, I went to my home group and the speaker talked about wanting to kill herself in sobriety. Somebody from the floor mentioned a longtime member that I did general service service work with years ago, always doing service. He was killed himself. <clears throat> Dear friend of mine in the program, 
in May because of COVID and mental health issues killed themselves. And I was like, wow, okay, no, I need to talk about it. I always appreciate it when someone talks about suicide. It's such an uncomfortable conversation, but you know, a lot of people think about it. I made a, a different decision to talk about it a few weeks ago and then had the good fortune of uh, talking to Lee, I don't know, about a week later. I just wanted to put a voice to the email and the text and had a really nice conversation with Lee and talked a little bit about it. With that conversation, um, my entire attitude, and, and I've done lots of work, lots of work around this. In my 16th year of sobriety, I finally figured out how to forgive myself. After the conversation I had a week ago, I felt like this huge weight got lifted off of me um, when I hung up talking to Lee, just that my attitude toward my past is different. I got to have so much compassion for that 17-year-old, you know, just so much compassion. And I don't know if I ever did before. That's, uh, this has been an incredible two-week journey leading up to this interview, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for being open-minded enough to be willing to look at all this so that you could show up here today in full authenticity, and you are helping so many people. And I want to say that it was an honor to be a part of that two-week journey. And I thank you for trusting me. It means everything. I know it means everything to both of us to have this podcast be a healing tool, I guess, for people. Um, And it only works if we're authentic and we share the real story. So you're right. The suicide is a thing that takes people away from us that we need here on the planet. And I think we need to talk about this more and destigmatize it if we can, so that people that are suffering feel like they can talk about it and ask for help. And I'm grateful to you for doing that here today. The uh, immensity of the moment is, is uh, upon me, I guess. Well, can I jump in Lee? Yeah. Um, So what just happened with you happens a lot. People, not that you're uncomfortable, but, it's just, it's a big topic and it's just like, you know, it's brings up stuff for people. And that's why I think it's really important that you, uh, that it gets talked about something I want to say also, you can't 12 step away mental illness. And I, I eventually as an adult did see somebody and talk about all that, you know, 12 steps are wonderful for things, but they can't, it doesn't, take away uh, depression. It doesn't um, take away mental illness. You know, sometimes alcohol is a depressant and you take a depressant out of the equation, depression, your depression gets better. But if it's deep seated, uh, you know, you, a professional outside help is absolutely necessary. Well, that's great advice. I think, um, you know, it's, these things travel together, depression and, and addiction and, substance abuse and how, how did you know that to go and seek outside help? Well, it kind of came upon me. It was again, later in sobriety. I, I wish I could say when I first got sober that I didn't think about suicide. I did. I was very, I felt very alone and, but that was my own doing. You know, I was social distancing long before COVID by keeping people at an arm's length away. It was, you know, you always got the, you know, the Reader's Digest, I look good version of Liam. 
it was years later in an apartment. I, my upstairs neighbor happened to be a, a therapist and therapy was always a, a, a cost factor for me. And she says, I can connect you with somebody that's um, doing an internship and it's a sliding scale. And so I got to go in and look at all that uh, years later. You know, I think the greatest gift uh, of AA, they say it's a program of of self-acceptance and not of self-improvement. I'm the same person I was years ago, uh, healthier. The, The greatest gift was me. I got to, I just, you know, I'm like adore who I am and just kind of, it's, it's who I am. I had a, a friend a long time ago who used to say, like me, love me, or leave me alone. <laughs> but, uh, and I reflected a lot about that during COVID because I got to spend a lot of time by myself um, in, in isolation. I was like, God, how lucky I have a, a great relationship with myself today. I love that you, what did you say? I adore myself or something. Yeah, yeah. I, I adore that. That is beautiful. And as we begin to wrap up the episode, talk to us about some of the promises that have come true. You are a potter. Are there other things that you've been able to embrace and do as a result of sobriety and doing this work that you've been talking about? Yeah, I wanted to be, I mean, my mother, a pinch pot in third grade and wanted to do it my entire life. And I finally decided to do it. It was, gosh, probably 15 years ago. I was, you know, 40 something. I was like, I I was like, I don't even know where to begin. And this guy I was dating at the time, he goes, why don't you open your computer and Google beginners pottery classes, San Francisco and see what happens. And so that started my journey. The promises Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. If there is a fear, I look at it. I usually walk through it. If I can't, I talk to somebody and then eventually get to walk through it. A couple of years ago, I was really had some financial fear going on and I took some action and um, things worked out. You know, I, what was amazing is, you know, I, my work life got cut a lot during COVID my sponsor was like, how are you doing with the financial end of all this? And I said, much to my surprise, and I'm going to ride this wave, I'm not having fear of economic insecurity. So there was a huge trust in the universe. You know, I, I actually ended up landing an account during COVID for pottery. Um, it just kind of unfolded. I'm not saying, you know, it's make a wish list, but uh, the, I think the biggest plus is the fear of, of, of people has, has left me. I get to just, you know, meet people where they are. As I already said, the self-acceptance and the forgiveness I have for what I did to myself has been uh, extremely powerful. Well, Liam, I want to thank you so much for taking time to share your experience, strength, and hope with us. It's been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate being here. It's so nice to meet both of you and get to be able to put a a name and a face to the voice (laughs) and all of that. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you you for stepping up. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to find us online, you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash daily reflection podcast. You can find us on Twitter at daily reflector. You can read stories of recovery from our community at blog.dailyreflectionpodcast.com. Please don't forget to give us a rating on your podcast app. 
We greatly appreciate it. Have a great day. This podcast produced by Lee McGinnis and Michael Lynn. Audio editing services by Jeff Bame.